break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Welcome to the Drunken UX Podcast, everybody. This is episode number 94, and we've got three different things that we pulled from the web that we're going to be talking about with you tonight. We're going to be looking at uh, different types of technical debt, some opinions on what we should be doing about sliders on web pages, and taking a look at some funky browser features. Folks, I am your host, Michael <laughs> Feenan. I'm, I'm still finding myself. I'm your other, other host, Aaron. And if you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, be sure to check out our very kind sponsors over at the Live at Manning conference series. Um, APIs right now are the backbone of modern interconnected software systems. You can join them at the API Live at Manning conference and ensure your APIs are flexible, functional, and user-friendly. If you want to register for the API conference, it is August 3rd, which if you're listening to this on release day, that is tomorrow. But those tickets are free, mm. and you can go get one by going to drunkenux.com slash API Conf. That's drunkenux.com slash A-P-I-C-O-N-F. What's the C-O-N-F stand for? Uh, conference. Then what's the O? Uh, conference of natural that, functions? No, it's not an abbreviation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I am trying to cool off a little bit this evening with a... I, I have a glass that you pour your water into, and then you shove a silicone mold into it, and you freeze what? the whole glass. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. That. Um, and and it gives you like this wedge of ice, um, mm-hmm. this angled wedge of ice in it. So I'm drinking from that this evening with Ch- some Ch- gentleman Ch- Jack. I don't think I've seen that for like over a year. Yeah, kind of started melting already, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, I haven't used it in quite a while, and I thought I'm going to get that out because it's cold enough to hurt your hands when you're holding it. <laughs> But yeah, gentlemen, Jack, I'm I'm running, starting to run low on this bottle, so I figured let's let's see what I can do damage wise to it for this episode. Although I am not finishing it because I do not want to die. Okay. <laughs> I've got um a weird. It's not mixed, but I have both, and I'm drinking them interchangeably. I've got a bottle of tequila. It's Arete Blanco uh, tequila. It's just like the basic tequila at the liquor store kind of thing. It's good with uh, good in a margarita though. But I'm drinking it straight on the rocks with a very strange looking ice. It is ice, right? Yeah. And then I've got um, some Mountain Dew Voltage. It's... Is that the orange one? No, it's like a bluish color. But it doesn't taste blue. It tastes like... Well, so coincidentally, I also got some like uh, trolley Sour Bright Crawlers. They're like cap- Sour Patch Kids, but they're like worms. And this drink actually tastes a little bit like those but not sour but it's that kind of flavor so i'm having a weird like flavor interaction thing tonight but it's interesting i'm not mixing them i'm drinking them apart okay um sure i like to feel like i'm back in college sometimes too (laughs) so i mean i can't can't blame you so we got three uh, topics we're going to tackle uh, this evening. I have fun with these and went out and dug up some articles. Uh, this first article comes from Nicolas Cherrier, um, and I apologize if my French is not up to standard on that. Um, this is uh, from his blog post over at bitesizetheories.com, um, where he's talking about three kinds of technical debt. Um, we talked about that before, didn't we? 
Yeah, back in episode 38, we did a whole episode mm. on technical debt and, and what it is mm. and how it can build up and what you can do about it. Um, and it's it's a topic that I think is nice to kind of revisit once in a while, maybe not as a whole episode, but, mm -hmm. you know, as a little part of this one. Because I did like the way he broke down sort of the theory, because we didn't do that, not uh, to my recollection. Um, but he kind of bucketed technical mm -hmm. debt in a way that I thought was kind of a useful way of thinking about it, because depending on the type of, uh, you know, web professional you are, developer, designer, uh, DevOps type person, technical debt can take on different forms. And those have trade-offs. You know, some of them are easier than others. Some of them are more costly than others. And so I thought, let's take a second and look at what he talked about and see kind of, you know, what nomenclature we might add to, you know, the, the breakdown that he has. I think, I think the technical debt is like, like it's similar to reg to real like financial debt in the sense that you don't want to have it. Like it's not something you want to accumulate a lot of, but I, I think you can use it as a tool if you're judicious about how you use it. Yeah, like absolutely. You, you can you can buy a house by taking on a mortgage. That's a big amount of debt, but you're getting a house out of it, and it lets you pay it out over time. And I think with technical debt, it's the my favorite definition was trading, trading uh, uh, short term velocity gains for like uh, repaying the velocity later. Like so you're getting a lot of extra velocity now for your ticket completion, but you're gonna have to be repaying it later. Yeah. It's it, yeah, I, I like the financial comparison to it because yeah, there's good debt and there's bad debt, and mm -hmm. the bad debt is the stuff that will really bury you and and pull you down and hurt you. Mm -hmm. But part of good finances is simply debt management. You know, mm -hmm. the, the richest people on the planet all have their own amount of debt and in different ways, and and how they do it. Like you say, you know, a house is a good example mm -hmm. of that. Houses are generally considered good debt for a number of reasons, um, whereas credit cards are typically considered bad debt. They're high interest. You have to mm -hmm. pay them constantly, and it's easy to not pay them off because mm -hmm. you're making minimum payments on them and things like that. So this is something to think about. I like that comparison because I think the really important difference between the two is that when you take a mortgage out, there's a structured repayment plan built in to the product. Mm -hmm. The first bucket that he calls out is the most obvious one, which is code technical debt. Wait, people put technical debt in code? They put technical debt in code. <laughs> they invite it in in many cases. <laughs> Believe me. That's, that's, that's like some, that's some college credit card right there. <laughs> the, it's... Uh, Code debt is like a vampire. Once yeah. you've invited it in, the damage is done. Oh, man. <laughs> you know? He calls it, though, the cheapest form of technical debt because it's it's the easiest of the three that he calls out. He considers mm. it the easiest to pay down. Fixing code technical debt is just a matter of changing the code. I understand where he's coming from. And I don't completely disagree. And I guess maybe we'll see what he's comparing it to with the next items. I, I will say that I think that certain kinds of, of technical debt and code can be very difficult to pay down. Here's a great example. If you define an API that is being used by third parties, 
for your, which you can learn about at the Manning Conference that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug. If you, if you define an API and you don't version it, then any changes you make to it or any corrections you make or any technical that you've baked into it now carries a pretty big cost uh, when you make changes to it or try to pay it down later. The same thing that if you have very key models or um, like data modeling or uh, important objects in your application and you're careless with your decisions about them, it can be very difficult to change that later. Same thing with like choosing a framework. If you choose one framework and you're in production, switching to a different framework can be like a monumentally difficult task that may or may not ever get prioritized. So, so stick stick that one on on the bulletin board, this idea of data mm -hmm. modeling, because that's going to come back up in just a second. Oh, I see that. <laughs> yeah. So Okay, I didn't realize they weren't considering that to be code. <laughs> I no, you you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, with any of these, we're gonna be able to sit here and carve out exceptions. You know, yes, there are sure. ways to make really expensive bad decisions with code. Yes, there are gonna be really cheap ways to do the other things and, and easy mm -hmm. fixes. I think, you know, looking at it as a general, you know, a very broad mm -hmm. generalization of the category and he does qualify it a little bit by saying one of the reasons code can be easier to deal with is because you can change your approach to the code on the fly. Mm -hmm. And the example he gives is if you've got a lot of code technical debt, then if you take on a test-driven development methodology to approach mm -hmm. that, you can make it easier and cheaper to pay down that code debt. Okay, I would agree with that. You start wrapping the work you're doing in these tests, and it lets you start isolating and compartmentalizing places where the bad code is mm -hmm. and you can use those tests as the framework to winnow it down um to manageable I, I, parts i think a good a good razor here is um you want to take time to make sure that your surfaces like the places that you're going to be interfacing with your objects your classes your modules etc making sure that those things are pretty intentionally written and thoughtful and at least like able to be maintained mostly. And then the stuff inside of the functions or inside of the classes, you can, you can write technical debt there because that's internal stuff and you can always refactor it later. And your tests, like if you have tests written to work with these things, the surfaces won't change. So the tests shouldn't need to be changed except maybe on the setup. And then you can just modify the internals of how these things work without having to mess with the surfaces. This only matters because it's going to affect your maintainability. Even if you're only using it internally, it's going to affect your maintainability if you are able to keep the surfaces consistent. Yeah. So your, your method signatures, um, your method names, your classes, you know, any, anything that's going to be used by things outside of that class or object or, or namespace. If that, if the, the entry points of the API, if the method signatures and all that can remain the same, it's going to be easier to change it later. So I would agree if that if that's what he means here, then I agree. Yeah. This the second bucket is architecture debt. This is a big one, I think, and probably the most expensive of the technical debts. Think. Because when you start thinking about architecture, and, and a lot of mm -hmm. folks may never have to deal with the actual architecture that runs their stuff, 
But mm-hmm. if you are a, an army of one or a freelance developer or, you know, <laughs> like you and I, you know, we run our own little servers for personal projects and, and things like that. I run, you know, a server that hosts Drunken UX and, and mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. You can make decisions about how you prop that stuff up. So, for instance, let's say you're building a new application and you're going to host it in AWS and you have a choice. I can just spin up an EC2 instance okay, and say, you know what, now I have a server. I can install exactly what I need on it. I can, you know, tailor it to how much memory and CPU I need and storage. Or I could containerize it, run mm-hmm. it with Kubernetes or Docker or something like that, and abstract away some of that. EC2 gives me a very powerful solution. It gives me a lot of flexibility. And a year later, I have 64 different uh, patches I need to apply to packages because I haven't been <laughs> logging into it. Um, I forgot to start failed ban. So it's been getting hammered by Russian hackers for, you know, the last eight months and I didn't realize it. Uh, my logging server crashed on it and hasn't been keeping any logs or, or working mm-hmm. at all. Like the, the maintenance side of that begins to rear its head and you're like crap Mm -hmm. i just wanted to build my application i could have gone to heroku and just spun it up there and not had to think about is my operating system patched what version of php am i on like Mm -hmm. those challenges begin to add up and they themselves start to create debt inside of the way you're hosting whatever resources you have Uh, i agree with that you know one, I think, a bellwether for this, do you have architecture technical debt? One of the ways I think you can answer that question is, and this is kind of specific, but if you're building an application, mm-hmm. and in order to update that application, you have to schedule downtime, then you have <laughs> architecture technical debt. Sure. I mean, I, that that's, I think, a measure of that. If you have oh. built a good, sort of robust, supportive architecture, you can either swing set stuff, you can update in place, you can, you know, pause services without taking down an entire application, things like that. But if you have to hard stop stuff and schedule a six-hour maintenance window where nothing's accessible, you have architecture technical debt. I think another way to look at it is if you're... Like I always joke about how Google loves to discontinue services that people love when enough people like them. Uh, so if your hosting provider is make plays at Google and suddenly shuts down that particular uh, infrastructure service, and you have to move to a different place, how quickly can you move? Yeah, I think there's a variation on that too, which is how many single points of failure do you have? Mm-hmm. you're always going to find some weird random single point of failure unless you're somebody like Netflix or Amazon mm-hmm. who has you know thousands of servers running across mm-hmm. the country most people are going to have single points of failure somewhere in their infrastructure we we saw that a couple weeks ago right with um who's Akamai yeah Akamai went down and then like a month or so before that with Fastly that actually affected my job we we used Fastly for DNS and yeah, so those single points of failure. Your goal, and it's just like any debt, your goal isn't necessarily to eliminate all your single points of failure, but mm-hmm. you should know how many there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, is it a, a service, an API that you are relying on that if that API goes down, your system does not fail elegantly? Um, is it, you know, a, a load balancer? You have one load balancer. This, this is always a fun thing, right? Well, I have redundant servers behind the load balancer. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, how many load balancers do you have? And they're like, well, I just have the one. <laughs> Think about that for a second. You just need you need load balancers all the way down. The right, right pearls because just, you still need something to tell the traffic which load balancer to go to. And so it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you end up you can of course get around all of that with you know some root fifty three stuff and things like this. But most people, like I say, will have a single point of failure somewhere in their chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a good way to kind of measure your vulnerability to that. Uh, the other thing to think about is. Out of all of these, talking about like what kind of debt is the cheapest is sort of an abstract discussion, except mm. with architecture where bad architecture technical debt can incur real debt on mm-hmm. the business side of things because it's <laughs> easy. It is so easy to spend a lot more money on cloud services and things like that. Then Heroku gets expensive quickly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's nice to not have to maintain all of the DevOps stuff with maintaining your servers and patches and updates and everything. It's definitely nice. But man, like I've seen I've seen the, like, the cost things, like the inline cost things on our, our Heroku instance. And Amazon gets real expensive real fast. Mm-hmm. If you're running like full size EC2 instances, if mm-hmm. you have badly optimized um, IaaS, infrastructure as a service, if you are farming out, whether that's to AWS or Heroku or DigitalOcean or Azure or any of these places, if you have not optimized your infrastructure, your cloud infrastructure, you could be spending, as a company, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars that you don't need to Mm -hmm. because you're paying for a high memory instance of something that doesn't pass 30% consumption Mm -hmm. or something like that like there's just a lot of ways that that infrastructure can give you actual debt that you need to Mm -hmm. look at and then changing it can then be problematic depending on how it's set up there's this move towards what we call um infrastructure as code right oh right with uh not just gonna say jenkins not jenkins um like puppet configuration puppet yeah puppet and um Chef, I think Chef does. Chef it, is one, right? yeah, yeah. Terraform, um, a... mm-hmm. Terraform's yeah. out there. Um, Terraform's Go, I think. Chef is Ruby. Um, Puppet is so, yeah. Ruby. I may be wrong. Um, the other issue last on on my list for architecture is just that architecture debt can hide very real issues on you that you don't realize. If your infrastructure is not logging stuff properly and alerting you on things and you don't have Nagios or Prometheus or any of these application uh, monitoring app dynamics, something like that. If your application is throwing 500 errors a thousand times a second to users because of a misconfiguration and you aren't getting those, Mm -hmm. that can really hurt you. Like that can hide all kinds of issues because emails aren't getting to you and alerts aren't getting to you um, and performance, you know, it may be something as simple as a page that should, should load in 70 milliseconds is taking 700 milliseconds because of a memory misconfiguration. 
Um, anybody who's ever tried to performance tune Apache, um, something I have unfortunately gotten my hands into a few times, trying to like really tune a low memory, low CPU Apache instance to be performant, man, it's hard. And uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's real easy to have those servers slug, like really drag along. Um, the third bucket is data and modeling. So you, you mentioned mm -hmm. this. He broke it out into its own thing, the idea okay. of data and modeling. Um, this is like the idea. And my example is a real world example. We built an application that had a database back in. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent a week going back and forth trying to think about how we wanted to model this data and what would make the most sense. Mm -hmm. At the time... We settled on DynamoDB. Dynamo is okay. a what they call a NoSQL solution. Okay. It's basically one giant table with a bunch of columns, and you you build uh indexes on it based on different combinations of, of columns. And that worked great. Until okay. it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but our problem was the the decision making we made at the start was changed by changing requirements okay and instead of going ahead and going with a relational database like mysql or postgres or anything else um we decided to build for what we thought was going to be the limit when the specs started changing and the needs started changing it became more and more difficult to modify data um it became more and more difficult to change data and the issue we just ran into which was entirely michael's fault uh, michael did not deploy a production <laughs> release a few months ago Oops. and so a, a question came in about hey how do we get into this data and i'm like well it should just be there and i went and looked and none of the data was there and i'm like what's going on well michael didn't release the production code <laughs> <laughs> and so we went back through our logs. So remember when I said architecture debt? Our right. we had logging in place that stored all the raw submits. So we were able to go back through the data and extract all all of these submissions from the <laughs> logs to find the lost data. And that sounds like a fun weekend. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's bad. Um so we're going through it and we're looking at okay, so now we need to update the existing records with mm -hmm. this data to insert the stuff that wasn't being saved. And it's a nightmare with DynamoDB because of the way indexing in it works. And the fact that you can't just, it's not like a normal relational database where you can just throw a query at it and it's happy to give you back whatever matches the query. Dynamo doesn't work that way. Um, and so our failure to anticipate that, and there's going to be, uh, we're going to talk about something here in just a second that will help explain this. Our failure to sort of anticipate that incurred debt for us. Um, mm -hmm. And that goes for custom post types in WordPress. You know, you're building a custom mm -hmm. post type and thinking about what fields you need. You know, data modeling doesn't necessarily have to be like strict database, you know, OML, you know, things like that. Um, this can be simple stuff. What does my structured content look like? You know, what information do I need in order to spit out these things on the front end? And what start as good ideas and good decision making can still lead to debt unintentionally. Um, mm -hmm. 
It's just something that can happen. A long time ago, I worked on an app that began as using a MySQL database, and later on we changed it to Postgres. And Rails is great because it has built into it an ORM, an object rational mapper, which basically acts as an API boundary for your database. And it gives you a common interface regardless of what engine you're using under the behind the scenes. So when we switched from MySQL to Postgres, I think there was maybe like one or two things we had to change because they were like some manual SQL queries we had written. They're a little complicated. Um, but for the most part, the entire app was like, it was like a half a day um, migration to go from one to the other. And most of that was just getting the data itself migrated from one database engine to the other. There are two other types of debt that I think should be called out. Um, one is design debt and the other is content debt because I think those are things. Okay. Can you define those for me? So I think I know what you mean, but so design debt can be incurred by like the use of patterns that leak into each other or that overlap without properly overlapping. So this gets into pattern library stuff and design system kind of work, UX, UI work. Areas where um, uh, one of my favorites is like talking about spacing on things and mm -hmm. figuring out like, uh, well, I put top and bottom margining on these, but they're included with other things that have top and bottom margining. And now these things are all fighting me and I have to figure mm -hmm. out how to go in and rationalize them because the way I'm using box sizing, you know, is causing them to be additive instead of uh, combining Design can leak and drift. You get design mm -hmm. drift on things over time. And going back and trying to fix those after the fact um, or retrofitting can be very difficult and time-consuming rather than building something from the ground up to be correct. Um, so where I see this happening is in areas like, you know, when you do a redesign, are you retrofitting design or are you actually re-articulating your HTML, you know? And I, so I cribbing from that. Um, I had an app that I went from semantic CSS framework and then I went to tailwind and then I went to a different framework. No, I started with bootstrap and then I went to tailwind and then I went to semantic CSS. These are three very, very, very different approaches towards styling your HTML and not just in how classes are used, but also in how the HTML is structured. It's very different. And there was a significant cost in moving from one to the next. So like, when I think about design debt, I think about like, are you doing BEM? Are you doing tachyons? Are you doing, uh, what's the other one? Object-oriented CSS? Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. And, and one way that you incur that dead in those things too is being indecisive about them right mm -hmm. grabbing foundation and using it halfway but then also mixing it with some bem methodology or something like mm -hmm. that you know or somebody changes that, right another dev comes in and starts working on stuff and maybe you don't do code review and it turns out mm -hmm. they've been writing css in a completely oh different methodology that you can that call be... that code technical debt but i really feel it's <laughs> specifically designed technical debt it would be a nightmare. Um, 
I'll I'll end on this. It's a little bit of uh, um, thinking from Martin Fowler. He had this mm-hmm. uh, tech debt quadrant that he shared. Um, the mm-hmm. two columns are reckless and prudent, and the two rows are deliberate and inadvertent. And so mm-hmm. this can kind of help you define where you're – you know, when we talk about good or bad technical debt, we were talking earlier, it's like if you have prudent, deliberate technical debt, that is mm-hmm. significantly better than reckless, inadvertent technical debt. So what is reckless, inadvertent? Um, so he's got examples in here, like reckless, inadvertent. You know, his example is what's layering? Like building <laughs> stuff and you just don't know what you're doing, right? So you just – slap it together without any thinking for what makes sense architecturally you're mm-hmm. good you know what good reckless inadvertent is i'm mm-hmm. just going to store these api keys right in my javascript file <laughs> that's a real like yolo approach yeah to like app development <laughs> not storing keys in a secure way is pretty reckless and and if you don't know you know if you simply don't know better, that makes it inadvertent. You know, if you're a new dev and you don't think about key stores and things like that, mm-hmm. reckless inadvertent. Um, okay, so what's prudent and deliberate then? So prudent and deliberate is saying this is an ugly function, but mm-hmm. this is a showstopper bug that's going to take me mm-hmm. three days to fix, right? Mm-hmm. But I can get a patch out right now that gets my service back up. And I think I think we've all been there. I mean, for depending how many years you've been doing this, at some point you will invariably run into that. That's 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 good. Go, you know, going back to our financial comparison from earlier, th- this is kind of like you just got into a car accident or you blew out a tire or something, and now you have to use your credit card to pay to get it fixed. And you're like, okay, this cost me a thousand dollars to fix. I throw it on the credit card. And then I can pay it off over the next three to five months or whatever. Um, you have a plan, but you're getting the thing done now and you have your plan to get rid of, to fix it later on. Yeah. So that, that's a little look into some different tech debt thinking. Um, go check out the article at their website and be sure to put some thought into how your technical debt may be sneaking up on you. So over at Specky Boy, um, Mr. Eric Karkovac, who I have a lot of respect for, and uh, I, I am actually kind of, um, I, I feel like I almost need to have like a show with just all his stuff because I've quoted his article so many times. <laughs> over at Specky Boy, he's uh, put up an article where he's written about, is it time for web designers to retire the slider? Um, now... If you've listened to me before, and I was looking, and I thought we did an episode on this, and I guess we have. Wait, wait, wait. Before you continue, you should clarify what you mean by slider, because usually we use a different name. Yeah, not these. not very tiny hamburgers. Um, this can be a carousel, like an image carousel, mm-hmm. or, or a content carousel, um, a a panel rotator, and in my eyes, this takes many forms. For instance, the the tabbed. Um, mm-hmm. slider or the the content tabber that can be on in the hero section of a page, anything that basically is designed to present multiple pieces of information inside of one container. Mm-hmm. 
It's like a rotating billboard. Basically. Uh, yeah, rotating anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, rotating. Yeah, like an LED billboard going down the highway, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, my hatred for carousels <laughs> is matched only by my hatred for chatbots. <laughs> And that's not a joke. Like, I legitimately, I have fought fights to keep sliders off of web pages. Um, and I, I've given talks on, like, I have gone to conferences and presented on the fact <laughs> yeah, that you should get rid you of have, centerpieces. I can vouch for that. I, I mean, we were before the show, I was, I was joking that I don't think it's fair to ask web designers to retire the sliders because most web designers I know don't like using sliders. Yeah. It's usually it's usually it's a decision comes down from management with ooh shiny syndrome or right. uh, just I I also described it as um, uh, a design solution for people with object permanence problems where you if if you don't see yourself represented on the homepage front and center then you think that you don't exist on the web page at all yeah uh, and. In Eric's defense, he does make that note in the article. He does talk mm-hmm. about how it is often not the designer's choice to implement yeah. these things. It usually does come from elsewhere. There's a separate article um, by Joe Rinaldi over at Impact Plus. Um, he's, he has the comment that it's an easy solution for telling competing departments within an organization that their messaging is on the website, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying exactly what you just said. Like, Oh, they, they're so important. They want to be on the homepage. Fine. You're on the homepage. <laughs> like it, the sliders or carousels are a compromise or maybe a way to surrender to, to a lot of very loud and noisy departments. I, you and I both worked in higher ed for a long time. So I'm, you know what I'm thinking about here. Um, but it's, I think that if you if your team that's responsible for maintaining the like design and communication of the website of using it as a communication platform, you have to be able to be empowered to say no and to tell the people you're working with how it's going to be, and then you don't end up with with sliders. Yeah. Like it's it, if you're using one, it's probably because you're making a compromise because you're not empowered to say no to people, and and you may not have the social capital to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things about those fights is capitulating on a feature like this is often done because you would have to burn a lot of social capital mm-hmm. to fight it. But then that capital is gone for you. Now, now people don't like you. Yeah. Now you're the person who says no to things. And so when you have three more items on your list that would have been better and easier to win, now they aren't, um, it's, it's a content problem. It's an understanding problem. In 2021, you know, people still ask for them to be implemented on pages. Uh, they're, that's that's you know, because it's it's an uncreative solution. I, I Look, I want to put this out there. I want to say if you are currently hooked up on a slider, on the slider juice, and you want something different for yourself, if you want to take Specky Boy and Joe and all these web advice and get away from the slider sauce, I think... The solution is to implement a more affirmative content strategy. If you can go to these, to your stakeholders and you can say, really identify like what it is they're needing, like identify, listen to them, find out what their actual needs are. And you realize like, oh, well, they have this 
uh, semi-annual event, and they want to make sure that it's represented on the homepage, then you can build a content strategy around that to where they are represented. And then it's not so important that they're constantly on the carousel or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in, in the real world, sliders represent performance problems. They represent mm -hmm. accessibility problems. They cause bloat on your page, especially if they are implemented badly or poorly. You know, you're talking about sliders. I've seen sliders that load not just all the content of every slide when the page mm -hmm. loads, but they re-download it. They don't <laughs> cache it. <laughs> and you've seen this with me. We've covered this yeah. on the news episode, on yeah. the episode about news sites, where we found one of the news sites had a had one of those <laughs> rotators, and it was repeatedly downloading the stuff over and over and over again. Nobody, uh, look, nobody is going to sit on your website and click through each of the things unless you make them, unless you force them to do it. And if you force them to do it, they're not going to be happy about it. Yeah. I, I always hate seeing the ones where it's like the slide shows up and then the text like animates onto it, onto the thing. Like what? This is like the two thousands. Like this is no longer a novelty. You're wasting my time. Stop. But it's, it's also a, a problem with code bloat because in our, you know, speed to capitulate and just say, fine, mm -hmm. we'll throw it up there, but we're going to do it as easy as possible. This is te go technical debt. It's technical I'm gonna, debt. Well, it's technical debt. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. It's also something that I'm going to go grab a library because mm -hmm. it's going to take me twice as long to write one from scratch mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. just doing a vanilla JS. But the library I grab is going to be 75 kilobytes, mm -hmm. of which I am touching eight kilobytes of that code because the library is accounting for all these edge cases, all these different configuration settings, all these different mm -hmm. approaches and uses, which is great for the plugins builder. But as a result, I'm loading 75 kilobytes worth of code that I don't need. How many, a show of hands, how many of you out there who use WordPress have ever used revolution sliders? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Forget the JavaScript. Let's talk about CSS on that now. <laughs> that's when you go from having like an occasional pro that's when you have like you have a substance abuse problem with sliders is when you're <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so we've got a couple articles that'll be in the show notes on this from different places. My favorite is simply should I use a carousel.com? Mm -hmm. Um because it's gonna have all kinds of information in it. Um it also has all the data when Aaron says things like people don't click through carousels. That's supported by research, like a lot of research. And it's it's definitive. Like it's not maybe the drop off from the first slide to the second slide is like 93% or something like that. The best thing about that site, should I use a carousel.com, is that when you load the page, it considers all of the sites that you're currently working on and it determines for each of those sites should you use the carousel? And so the answer is calculated dynamically for each site that you work on. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, pick a site. Look for drunkynewx.com. So load that and now load should I use a carousel? What does it say? It says no, right? Okay. But so it, like pick, pick a different site, pick new cloud or Aquint, but and then go to Shay's. <laughs> it always says no. That's the joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I thought you were talking about like it actually like did something. I'm like, no. <laughs> Not the way that works. Okay. I'm with you. It was I'm, so good I got Michael. 
I'm I'm there with you. <laughs> Our last article comes to you from the kind folks over at everybody's favorite CSS site, CSS Tricks. Um, this is from Farai Gandia. Uh, the article is Web Features That May Not Work As You'd Expect. This is kind of cool because it tackles, and we're only going to talk about a few of the items that are brought up in it, but there are several that are mentioned through it beyond this. So do go check that out and, and see the other things. But this is kind of a look into... Things the browser does and, mm-hmm. and features that are available that don't necessarily do what you think they would under normal circumstances. And I thought that was kind of neat. And there were a couple examples that I even went, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so there's probably a little something here for everybody to learn. And it's one of those, like, figuring out idiosyncrasies. You know, we spent a lot of years figuring out, like, the difference between how IE9 would render something versus Netscape versus, you know, <laughs> Firefox and Safari. So, you know, that process has certainly gotten much, much better over the years, but that doesn't mean that idiosyncrasies have gone away. And in some cases, and, and with these a lot of these features, it's often just a case of, hey, the thing you're doing doesn't work how you would think because you're used to it other ways. Um, the first one being visited, colon visited. So, Aaron, what we were just talking, right, about CSS mm-hmm. specificity. Mm-hmm. What is colon visited? Is it is it a pseudo element or a pseudo class? <laughs> uh, that would be a pseudo class, right? Yes, yes. yeah, because it, it defines state. Because it's single colon. I it see. is single colon. So, so colon visited. The reason this does not work the way you would expect. There is a JavaScript function you can call on elements called getComputedStyle that will give you information on the way an element looks. This can be really useful for distilling out like what settings are on something, or if you're, you know, if you're changing the way something looks based on, you know, the state of something a user is doing in your application. It's a good way to pull it out and say, you know, is it visible? You know, is it bolded? Or is it, you know, is the alert highlighted? But with colon visited, Get mm-hmm. computed style does not work. And that is intentional. Like it doesn't work for a reason. Uh is it a Yeah, why why would that be? Is it a security issue? Yes. Okay, because yes, because because if you can see if they visited a site before and you can programmatically query for that, then you can find out information about their browser or like information outside of the site context yeah right so imagine you're running a a more nefarious site Mm -hmm. and you wanted to know are the users using facebook and twitter and linkedin and google Mm. and things like that you could make a whole block of links that you position you know absolutely negative 9999 pixels off the side Mm -hmm. and then Use some JavaScript to get computed style and see if they're showing the visited style. And you can start collecting data about where people have gone. To protect yourself, you want to make sure you always pan left negative 10,000 pixels to look for those links. That's the solution here. But every direction, you got to go up negative 10,000 pixels (laughs) down. It's it's a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, so this goes back to uh, about 11 years ago. 
the mm-hmm. CSS history leak. Um, and okay. there's an article over at Mozilla that I'll have linked in the show notes that breaks this down, but basically comes huh. back to this idea that people started using the, the visited pseudo class as a means of breaking down where people had gone. And so mm-hmm. browsers collectively locked down get computed style against that specific pseudo class. So it will never return. It returns null, I believe. It doesn't return anything. Um, hmm. And so generally speaking, yeah, no, the that one case just happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, it's not necessarily that everybody's out there like, boy, I really want to know what the, the visited state is on these links. But it's just a case of here's something you would just expect to work. And if you didn't know why it wasn't working for you, it would be a pain in the butt to probably figure it out. Okay. I've not actually tried this, but I wonder if you had uh, like an off-page container somewhere and you had a list of, say, a hundred different like big site links, you have Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, whatever, and then you apply a visited style to each of them. And if, if it was visited, then it's display none. Otherwise, it's display inline. What would you have to do? You'd have to like check to see, you have to do like a jQuery selector for everything that's visible and then iterate through it and then that would tell you like if the links had not been visited or you know what i mean yeah like that's <laughs> really i i don't know what you would do with it maybe like a cross-site like a csrf attack or a cross-site scripting attack or something i don't know well let's fold this into the next thing because yeah the next one is about cross-domain asset caching okay so going back to uh a few years back, right? Um, remember when Google released their uh, JavaScript CDN? Yeah, yeah. Where you could do like jQuery from a Google CDN. Right. Google had their yeah. CDN set up and they had, I mean, everything, right? Not just jQuery. You could pull prototype. Mm-hmm. You could pull, uh, uh, hell, they had like Moo tools and things like that still yeah. in there. Like you could pull anything you wanted to out of this. So um, the, the intent was that you pull it down you pull jQuery or MooTools or whatever from Google on, say, NewYorkTimes.com, and then later on when you go to Amazon.com, it's still cached and the page loads faster, right? right. That's the intent. That's the intent. And, like, web fonts were set up mm-hmm. kind of the same way. You can use Google fonts to do that. Right. Um, and likewise, the other side of that, though, is also just the strict performance aspect, which was Google CDNs were super fast. And your server probably was fast, but not as fast. So (laughs) there was a secondary benefit there. But yeah, the caching thing, we all used to sit around and be like, well, I'll just use, yeah, the the Google CDN jQuery, because then Mm -hmm. if they've been to, you know, popular site X and popular Mm -hmm. site X is also using it, then I've saved them that download. That's not true. Interesting. Uh, So you still get the speed benefit of using Google CDN, but it's always as if it's the first time. Certainly, yes. Okay. So there is no such thing as cross-domain asset caching. Even from a CDN? Even from a CDN. For All right, and, so what what why? That that's this is not intuitive for me. So the the why behind it is actually for an almost identical reason to why colon visited doesn't return a, a computed style. Because okay. you can through JavaScript APIs tell if files are being loaded from cache and use that to exploit people's browsing history. Huh. Yeah. And so for the pretty much the same reason. Now, the approach is certainly different, but the rationale is basically the same. It's a security and a privacy concern. But if you if you load 
if you've previously loaded jQuery on Google.com and then now you're trying to visit Facebook.com and load jQuery there, how can they how could Facebook tell that you've loaded it previously from Google? Because they could just tell that you have it. You right? you need to think about it a little more fourth dimensionally. Okay. I'm not going to do it with something as broad and basic as jQuery. Uh-huh. I'm going to do something like load the sites, uh, a very specific site's JavaScript uh-huh. from them on my site to see if you've been to their site. Let's say I'm a comp- – uh, Oh. A, let's say I'm Widget Company X, and I, I want to you. know if you have been going to Widget Company A. Well, I I'll load you. Widget Company A's you know, and see CSS or something – and okay. when I see that, oh, it loaded from cache, I know you've been there, and maybe I will exploit that in some way, shape, or form. That that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I was thinking it was just applying to CDNs, but no, that – It's easier that. to explain from a methodology standpoint, mm-hmm. I think, using that general thing. But you have to think about, like, if I want to be nefarious, how would I exploit that? Mm-hmm. And that's how people exploited it. So, so the reality is that any domain, any asset is always contextualized to the domain that's loading it. Right. Now, okay. caching does work. Mm-hmm. You go back to the site, it will load from cache. Right. But it just doesn't cache cross domain. Like you, you are, right. you're limited to what are called groups. And we'll talk about that in a second. Sure. Um, groups in storage mm-hmm. sort of compartmentalize all the site, you know, make silos for all this stuff. So yeah. Sure. One of those. Yeah. Not, not going to give you the benefit you think it does. Uh, loading. This is a fun one. So uh, another topic we've covered is lazy loading, right? And mm-hmm. how to, you know, get a little more performance out of your imagery and things like that. Loading is an HTML attribute you can put on things like images that will tell the browser to lazy load that image until, you know, it's viewed. Uh, some people uh, prior to this would use techniques that um, leveraged what's called the Intersection Observer API. A very cool API, a very useful API that can tell you where on a page somebody is and can tell you if something is coming into view or out of view. So folks would say, well, when an image that isn't loaded is within 10 pixels of, you know, the intersection, then go ahead and load that image then. Mm -hmm. That's very cool, except that there are two things about it. One is loading... Unless you are doing something with it outside of the realm of normal behavior, loading does not work if the user has scripting disabled. And you mean, wait, hold on. You mean if they have the scripting disabled, then the loading trigger doesn't even fire? Right. Because here's the thing Every, people like to say, oh, you don't need to use JavaScript anymore in order to mm-hmm. use lazy loading. Right. It's kind of true but it's not really true. It's true okay. that you don't have to write any JavaScript, but it is not true that you don't need it. Because if the, so like, so the, the loading feature is kind of like internal JavaScript that's right. running behind the scenes for the browser. And okay. again, this comes back to a, a privacy and a tracking issue because you can sure. use the loading of images as uh-huh. a way of tracking a user. Right. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, so it's if funny somebody, how like all these features are like built around security, yeah, security relations, <laughs> and so is the last one for what it's worth. Uh, but yeah, so if if somebody has disabled scripting in their browser, you know, using the mm-hmm. security settings, lazy loading won't work. 
The other thing about lazy loading that um, was interesting to me, the, the loading attribute, you can't polyfill it. Okay, hold on. I hate polyfill. Whenever I hear polyfill, I think polygon filling, like a vector art kind of thing. I can't disagree with you. <laughs> I it's I it's been explained to me what it is, but it's not an intuitive name at all, and it just I hate it. <laughs> um so you, you can't polyfill you it can't meaning polyfill you it. Can't, so what do you actually mean with that? So you can't write JavaScript. So if you are using a browser, an older browser uh-huh. that doesn't support loading, let's okay. let's use the more classic example like IE eleven, right? Sure. IE eleven doesn't support loading. Um, mm-hmm. and you want to write a piece of JavaScript that will right. do the same work. You know, this is right. frequent for things like browser APIs, right? When, when we didn't have local storage, people would do things like write a polyfill that would mimic local storage using cookies right. or something like that. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so this is because loading operates at kind of like on like the the bare metal I'm making air quotes here bare metal level of the browser rather than at like the the client side code level you can't where the polyfill would normally execute that's why it doesn't work so kind presumably you can write a polyfill for it you could do it like you could write the code and the code would work sort of the problem you run into is basically a race condition the problem is in the time it takes your polyfill to load and be useful, the images will have likely already loaded on the page. Oh. <laughs> like, you would have to do something else on top of Like, the old solutions were things like, instead of using a source on an image tag, you might use something right. like data source, and you would swap right. those. But if you are using, like, a vanilla approach, image, source, and then the loading attribute, if the browser doesn't support the loading attribute, it's just going to load the image like normal. And your polyfill simply isn't going to react fast enough to prevent that. <laughs> so, yeah, it, like I said, yeah, funny. Like, it's just kind of – I hadn't thought about it, but it makes sense. Our last uh, little little thing that doesn't work the way you uh, might think is web storage persistency. A lot of people think web storage, and we we're talking about, like, local storage, right? Mm-hmm. Local storage lasts until people clear their cache. Okay. By convention, yeah, that's mostly true, but it's not. There are two exceptions to this. One is the big one is Safari. Safari actually has a seven day limit on local storage. Hmm. Okay. So after seven days, Safari just says, nope, this is gone. Mm hmm. That's just something I think a lot of people aren't used to and aren't necessarily mm-hmm. considering. Um, now, obviously, you can re-up that. You know, people keep coming back to a site or something. But if somebody doesn't come to your site for a week, you should not assume that that local storage is still there. Um, yeah. There is something else, too, because I said by convention, most browsers let you store stuff, and they have huge data caps. Um, like, local storage can take up, uh, depending on the browser, up to 50% of available storage. So if you've got a 500-gig drive, it can store mm-hmm. 250 gigs in local storage if it's allowed. Um, now, there is a limit per group usually, and I, I used that word earlier when we were talking about uh, cross-domain stuff, right? Groups. A group is mm-hmm. basically a domain. Uh, okay. So you've got what is usually like a two-gig limit per group. So it's like a, a 
half your storage in total determined by up to two gigs per group. And that, that cap varies. I think Chrome is one gig. Um, it's, it just depends. But if things start filling up, the browser will just start deleting stuff. And it uses what's called an LRU policy, a least recently used. So okay. the oldest stuff basically starts getting thrown away. And it'll just do that to make room. There is, however, a persistent storage API you can use to say, hey, this stuff should be protected. It shouldn't get thrown away. Um, and so we'll have a link uh, to you know where that works and how that storage API and the permissions work. It's a browser permission thing. You do have to ask for it. It does cause a pop-up and all of that. But web storage persistency is kind of a funky little thing. Because local storage does not have an expiration built into it like a cookie does. Mm -hmm. So the browser handles it a little differently. And Safari, being the odd boy, just says, seven days. We're we're going to be different from everybody. Seven days, it's gone. <laughs> That's really good to know. I, I've used local storage before for like kind of pseudo auto saving features for like, you know, when the user wants to like have something that they're writing, have it be kind of like pre-saved just in case the computer crashes or whatever without doing a write to the database. And they would probably be super miffed if after like a week because they left the tab open for a week, all of a sudden it just goes away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so go take out check out the article there's a few more things in there that we didn't bring up but i thought these would be some of the more interesting ones to folks who are uh, doing web development go look at those mm -hmm. it's over at css tricks and we'll have it all in the show notes are apis on your mind Listen to expert speakers discuss API design patterns, effective development methodologies, and the latest tools for designing amazing APIs at the Live at Manning API Conference. Sign up for the API Conference August 3rd for free. It streams on Twitch, and you can get your free tickets at drunkenux.com slash API Conf. That's drunkenux.com slash API C-O-N-F. Folks, I hope you enjoyed the different topics from this evening. It's I, I enjoy kind of taking a break sometimes and just kind of running through a few different things just to dress it up and, and change things up. Let us know any topics that are on your mind or things you think should uh, come up in a future episode. You can connect with us on any of the social medias at Twitter or Facebook at slash DrunkenUX or Instagram at slash DrunkenUXPodcast. And as always, hit us up in our chat room. We have a Discord server at DrunkenUX.com slash discord if anybody's interested too keep your ears to the wall because we have some pretty killer guests lined up we're going to be talking about stuff like web vitals we're going to be talking about content strategy for developers we're going to be talking about something else that may be wordpress related and theme related uh, i'm not going to spoil all of it right now but let's just say we've got some pretty awesome folks in the pipeline so <laughs> Be on the lookout. Uh, we'll announce some stuff coming up on uh, on social media about those things. Get subscribed if you're not already. Hit the like button. Leave us a review. It really helps us out because uh, it it's important to us that when we are interacting with you and writing up these shows and coming up with these ideas, that we keep our personas close but our users closer. Bye-bye. <laughs>
。